Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. And welcome back to the M365 Developer Podcast. Uh, how you doing, Jeremy? Good, buddy. It's um, obviously less than a week and a bit till build, so um, as always, it's pretty crazy around here. But um, it's been fun. Well, kudos to you, because I, you know, I I recorded the episode and I just half assumed I would do a solo introduction, <laughs> <laughs> but you're able to carve out time, so appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, it's actually it's well partly the COVID thing. It's just nice to talk to friends with being on this isolation, so that's one definite benefit. And then secondly, it's actually a nice break from what what we're focusing on, just to kind of come up, get some air, and then jump back in again. It's going to be fun. There was we've been reviewing a lot of content this week. Um, we've also been planning a lot around this three-hour live code session that we're doing. So I'm I'm really pumped. I'm really excited to see what people's reactions are to build because there's been a lot of like we haven't we're not just making what we do in a normal build and you know pushing it to the cloud. Like this is legitimately how can we do the best virtual event possible? And the business process summit, I think I'm saying that right, was this week and that went off real well. And some of the numbers of how many people were attending the sessions was like, whoa, this is a big deal. The MBAS, the business application. Yeah, that's right. It's so like, like the power platform one, right? Yeah, so like Donna Sakar and John Levesque and they had um, the CVPs and stuff talking in the keynotes and things. So... Yeah, that's like the equivalent of build for, for them. So, And they went really well, and we're using the same platform. Excellent. So I'm, I'm excited. It's going to be fun. Cool. So then let's hop right in. So first item out of the Microsoft Graph organization is a blog post from Vincent around change notifications. You got some details on that? Yeah, so obviously Vincent's been in Microsoft now. I think he mentioned the other day it was like three months when I was chatting to him. feels like he's been here for a long time, but I think because he was so close to us when he was an MVP, and giving feedback and it's really just like a badge change and now he officially gets to announce things on blogs like this one yeah. um, and he's been doing some great work he's been driving a lot of stuff with the workloads to get on board uh, with notifications and change tracking and make sure we have a, a much more consistent graph api across the different entities or resource objects depending on who you talk to and he has put some stuff into the sdk to help with subscribing to notifications and into Postman collection, he's done it, um, into the samples. We've released some new samples for Node and .NET and Java. And so he's really just trying to make sure that wherever possible, we can help developers to understand the right way to do change notifications, change tracking inside of the graph, webhooks, yes. basically, um, and Delta, Delta queries. So yeah, it's good. I, it, it's making a really big difference having Vincent really focus on this area and get that time to dedicate and, and do it. And so it's been great to see how quickly as a PM he's grown into those shoes. And like this blog post is announcing a lot of stuff. So if you're doing anything with change notifications or change tracking, I'd highly recommend you re-look at this blog post and uh, have a look at the samples and the docs because they've all been updated. He also owns Throttling and there's a bunch of stuff he's been doing around Throttling recently too on the Throttling page in the Graph Docs too. So always worth revisiting the docs to see what's changed. I agree. And and, and if there ever was one area that we want consistency, this is going to be it, right? I want to have, I, I can I can sort of understand that getting a resource from SharePoint might look different than getting a resource from Outlook. But when it comes to change or change tracking, I want it to be the same. So I'm glad he's working in this area. All right. So the next item I, I found this week was um, Azure released an update to their uh, uh, SDK. This is the April 2020 Azure SDK. And so including this kind of as a just an item to be completed, we're talking Microsoft development. So we want to cover that. But just a reminder, there's there's work underway to unify some of the identity pieces around the Microsoft Graph SDK versus the Azure SDK. And so I think it makes sense for folks to be paying attention to this. And notably, in April 2020, um, they have updated the SDK to include Key Vault. Oh, cool. And so uh, getting stuff. And, and I actually rolled this out in our production app. Uh, I'm doing some functions, and I need to, to get our certificate to make calls to some delegated resources. And so putting the certificate in the Key Vault certainly much easier than having to monkey around with the app service settings and upload the right thing and oh, 
been yeah. actually I forgot how uh, much you do functions. I should have reached out to you. I've had a heck of a week with my pet project that I do in my air quotes spare time. <laughs> I I I'm a tradition true dev. The functions that are the APIs that back my mobile app weren't in source control. I was basically coding directly in the functions UI. And I was like, I should really do this with Azure DevOps. And uh, so I wanted to get the continuous integration working with functions. And th- there's two options. You can do it like the TFS way in ASDO, or you can do it with Azure Pipelines, which is in preview. And I'm using .NET Core uh, Web API kind of calls. And I had a heck of a time trying to work out what the build steps were meant to be to like package this thing and deploy it so the functions actually showed up correctly in the functions UI so that they were exposed in the API. But I got there, but um, it was a little bit too much rum and coke for me getting that going. And so I gave some feedback to the team this week. I was like, this seems like a pretty common scenario and you don't seem to have too much on what that should be. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of documentation on how to set up your function app to pull code from GitHub or from a repository, but that's not how most DevOps things are working, right? I I have a process Mm -hmm. and a pipeline to push things, and yeah, I struggled a little bit with that, but yeah. So I will say, though, their Visual Studio Code extension has come a long way, and being able to push uh, code from that directly into an Azure resource uh, and you know, refresh code that way is really, really cool. It's really cool until it's like you, where your function yeah. app source code is not then in a repository because you went straight from code to the app service. So, yeah, yeah. But but back to this point though. I mean, Key Vault. Obviously, now it was easier to manage a certificate in Key Vault. Key Vault will send notifications through an event hub if I want, or through Azure Monitor when it's close to expiration, so I don't lose it. And now I can. I can write a CLI now, right? Boom, off we go, and and things would be uh, be able to read there. So that's good to get caught up on the Azure SDK. The next item that to talk about, I just at the moment I just have a a, a tweet a tweet. Uh, the Office UI Fabric conversion to Fluent is getting even more and more imminent, and they just released what they're calling version eight or V eight of the Fluent UI packages. And so folks who are doing user interface work are going to at least want to be aware. Uh, they, I'll put a link in the notes. They have a GitHub issue that's like a tracker issue for all the work being done. So it's certainly you could subscribe to that conversation, if you will, and get notified when, when things move along. So looking forward to more of that stuff coming through. Yeah, and actually there's been a huge push um, from our execs to kind of align all of our controls and components. And um, so the Graph Toolkit team, Nicola and Elise and Beth and all that, the, those crew of PMs and devs have been working with the Fluent group and the Teams group and various other groups in Edge and Windows to get a better, you know, like unified story there on how we're going to support web components as a whole thing. And so I'm, I'm really excited with the fact that that's come from the top down now is excellent because it will mean that things happen because there'll be a meeting sometime in the future where we're like, so where are we at with unifying all this stuff? And there'll only be one answer, which is we're unified, boss. And so it's great when that happens. I I can't wait because I've spent the last week plus writing so much substantial SPFX, single page, web part, and I, I know the next question is, does it work in Teams? And, and I really don't want to have to redo the UI. <laughs> so <laughs> having a unified story is going to be great. Yeah. So let's move on to some community news. The first one on our list here is uh, Edge Task Manager. And this is a tweet that you oh, posted yeah. about. And you were very yeah. excited to tell me about it. This is wicked. So it essentially is like Windows Task Manager, but for Edge. Now, it's pretty unknown, <laughs> But you do shift escape when you're in Edge Chromium, so the new Edge, which most Windows machines are kind of the old Edge is going away. I don't know what we call the old Edge, just Edge. Um, And it allows you to look in the tasks within the Microsoft Edge Chromium. So you can see how much each individual tab is consuming with memory, CPU, and network. You can end the process. You can end a tab. You can see which extensions are chewing up work and what your GPU processing is like. So it's super helpful to get a good understanding about, you know, as a developer, whether you're doing the right thing in the way you're writing your code. But also, you know, if you're adding extensions here and there everywhere and you're complaining about the speed, 
you can genuinely just go look and, and see what's causing your machine to gobble up memory. So I, I really like that. It's really cool. Yes. And I was excited that you shared this because as I said, I'm writing a bunch of code in SPFX, which is in the browser and it was slow. It was slow. And sure enough, uh, I'd have a crash because it's, you know, Paul doesn't write JavaScript code that well. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so they have massive amounts of memory in that dev instance of, of Edge. So killing it, fixing. So it's really good to see. Next item I found is uh, Jan Baker po uh, uh, wrote a post about how to keep an eye on your teams with long analytics and Azure Monitor. I know that was kind of a mouthful. The, the gist of his post here is that you can go into Azure Active Directory, for example, and set up audit logs on things that happen in your directory. For example, when a group is created, maybe, and you can then pump that from Azure Active Directory into the long a a log analytics workspace in Azure. And in the log analytics workspace, you can set up alert rules and run reports. And so the uh, what's ha what ends up happening here is you follow these steps, you can get an email from Azure that says, hey, a group was added or membership of a group changed or something along those lines. And I, I it, it caught my attention because, you know, this is kind of things that people ask about and maybe they come to a developer because I need to know what's happening in my system or in my environment. And maybe I don't need to write some code. And the less code I write, the less code I have to maintain. So uh, I wanted to point this out that there's a lot of capabilities that maybe you weren't aware of or use technology in a, in a way that was counter to what you've done in the past could be helpful. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't aware of this stuff too. So it's, it's really interesting to see that as a, a scenario. Thanks again to Jan. The next one is a, a Bot Framework Composer. So um, Stefan Bisser, who I'm sure we've talked about before because he's done a lot of work in this yeah. bot space here. He has a, the start of a series to use the Bot Framework Composer. And this post is talking about using it with adaptive cards. So closing the loop on some recent sessions. But before we started recording, so Jeremy asked me, what is Bot Framework Composer? And my reply was, SharePoint designer for bots. And so it's something that <laughs> if, if you're in the bot space, you're trying to get in the bot space, it's something to be aware of. Uh, you can use a web-based designer that looks a lot like Flow or Power Automate or Logic Apps to, to model a, a conversation flow that would happen or a dialogue, if you will, and then generate some code that the bot can then handle it. And then he talks through about how to use the adaptive card abilities to give you a prettier UI instead of just a text-based interaction. So great stuff there by Stefan. And I look forward to more in this series um, around Bot Framework Composer. And your comparison to SharePoint Designer is because it's free? <laughs> or the, also it's like a low-code versus... Yeah, so the way I used to use SharePoint Designer back in the day is inevitably uh, a power user would have an idea on a workflow, but that idea would change, I don't know, six or seven times an hour. And <laughs> rather than have to write the code six or seven times an hour, I'd say, go do this until you have it done, and then let me know, and we'll go from there. So this would be a similar thing that I can drag and drop and yeah. and model this this dialogue or conversation iterate very quickly, and then when it's all done, hit a button, it generates, I think it's uh, node-based, but maybe they do both languages, I'm not sure. But but again, it generates the code that can then be posted up to your host, and then off you go, or, or extended by a developer if that's what you need as well. So Yeah, I, um, that's cool. I mean, that's yeah. how I used to use SharePoint Designer as well, a prototyping tool, basically. Yeah, yeah. But that's been turned off. I noticed uh, there was a, we didn't really cover this, but uh, a few weeks back, there was a security issue and the SharePoint team turned off access from SharePoint Designer to SharePoint Online. So people aren't using it anymore. <laughs> so um, this week I, uh, I had a chance to sit down with Kyle Marsh and Avi Vade from Edge slash Identity Teams to talk about using Edge and the new identity improvements. And uh, I was grateful for them to hop on here. As we talked about a couple of things here, we talked about an Edge and Avi. Well, so first of all, I was lurking on Twitter and I saw them talking about things. So if you want to be a guest on the show or you have a topic about things you want to hear about, let us know and I can find these folks. But um, so anyways, Avi uh, posted about some improvements in Edge using you know, lo logins and the profiles and stuff. And so he covered that from a really uh, introductory high level 
point of view. And then Kyle, who I think you said is in the identity team, went through and... That's right, yeah, the six pages. Yeah, and he uh, was talking about using the SDKs and he helped clarify the whole ADAL, MCL, V1, V2, mumbo-jumbo that's been going on forever. So so he gave us the official word on how all that works. I was grateful for them. And then uh, I found another person doing identity samples who will be coming on in a couple of weeks so we can go the next level deeper about using the SDKs and how to use that with Microsoft Graph. So we look forward to that as well. That's awesome. And then next week, uh, we, we sat down last week and was like, what do we want to do is the week straight after build? And uh, I've seen build um, and what's going on there. And uh, the fluid framework stuff that we showed at Ignite is getting another layer of reveal. And so we're actually getting the main folks from that team on the podcast. So really excited to talk about that. Hi, Scarlett. Yeah. So yeah, look for the, the fluid stuff has been great demos. Look forward to the folks building it have been very helpful. So look forward to chatting with them. And then uh, I guess at this point we can uh, sign off with uh, have Scarlett take us out of here and we'll catch you all next week. You say goodbye, Scarlett. You say it. Don't wave because the podcast people can't hear you, can't see you. Say goodbye. Bye. See you, Paul. Thanks, mate. See ya. So this week on the podcast, we have a handful of folks from Microsoft. First, we have Avi Vade. Hi, Avi. Hope I said that right. Yeah, that's uh, perfect. Hey, my, hey everyone. My uh, name is Avi Vade, and I work on the Microsoft Edge product team. And also joining him is Kyle Marsh. Kyle, welcome, Kyle. Yeah, hi. Thanks. Uh, I work on the Microsoft Identity team, uh, and I specifically work with developers on how to best build and optimize for our platform. So thanks for coming on, the two of you. This all started because Avi posted something on the Twitters that mentioned identity and Chrome and me being an identity geek. I was all over it and I hassled him until he decided to come on. So I really appreciate you guys taking time to come on and, and talk about this kind of stuff. And so the, the we want to focus this, this week on Edge based on Chrome and, and then diving deeper into what developers can do to leverage some of these capabilities. So let's start with what these capabilities might be. And so I I know Edge is now running on Chrome and there's various channels. I've been running Canary for a long time. So, Avi, can you start by telling us what what does that really mean with this Edge Chrome build and and why folks may want it? Firstly, thank you so much for having us on the podcast. I'm happy to be here. You were not hassling me at all. But uh, let's start with uh, talking about the Edge Chromium story a little bit. So in case uh, you're not aware... About a year ago, Microsoft announced the intent to adopt the Chromium open source project in the development of Microsoft Edge on desktop. And the intent behind this was to create better web compat for our customers and less fragmentation of the web for all uh, web developers. So it's uh, been general goodness. And uh, to date, we've made uh, more than 1,700 commits to the Chromium open source project which we're very, very proud of and contributed a bunch of things in accessibility and web platform enhancements. As uh, you mentioned, uh, we've had insiders running insider builds like Canary and Dev and Beta over the past year, and we just got our first public release out in Jan 2020. And as part of this release, uh, we have uh, we have sort of made this uh, browser identity aware. And so this is... Uh, a browser that supports full capabilities like browser sign-in, single sign-on, and uh, multiple profiles. And we can uh, dive into those a bit later. But that's sort of a quick overview of the Edge Chromium story as it relates to identity. Right. And the thing that caught my attention first off is, you know, I, I'm building on the Microsoft 365 platform, all the cloud-based stuff. And so logging into different tenants, my dev tenant, the state testing, the demo tenants, and so on got to be quite onerous. And Chrome had the profile capability. But obviously what, what appealed to me was that if I'm going to log into a Microsoft platform and if I use my AAD account or my MSA account, then I've got a cookie already. So browsing through these multiple tenants would be easier. Does that kind of fit with the story of what you what you feel? Or, or I'm guessing you can go even further than that if I dig under the covers, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as you mentioned, a crucial component of this new browser is that you can sign into it with your Worker School accounts or your Microsoft accounts. And uh, when you do this, we really want to try to enable uh, great personalized experiences for you, such as browser sync, personalized new tab page, Microsoft search, 
And of course, as you mentioned, uh, single sign-on. So when you're signed into Edge, we want to make sure that you get automatically signed into websites, especially if the websites that uh, uh, that authenticate using a Microsoft authentication flow. With uh, uh, we want to sign you into those websites with the uh, with the account that you're signed into Edge with, uh, and sort of remove that productivity hassle of having to enter a password every single time. And so uh, this new browser has full support for enterprise single sign-on uh, scenarios with you know the primary refresh token flows, integrated windows, auth, and uh, conditional access. And so uh, I don't know if you've been uh, if you've been trying that out, but uh, that's sort of uh, what we have tried to create with an identity aware browser. Yeah. So what I've done mostly is is well, there's the keep me signed in prompt that shows up for my work or school accounts, right? And so I, I'm often dealing with half a dozen different tenants just or just as part of part of my work. So being able to just minimize that is very helpful. So yeah, it's been great. And the other thing that, well, initially it would confuse me, but the my photo that's in my AAD tenant is what shows up as the profile picture in the browser as well, right? So I end up clicking on the, the wrong one. Sometimes I click on the Office 365 icon to change my profile and it's not there. <laughs> but um, all that stuff is, is, is really, really, I think it's been great. And it, I haven't really done much with the uh, enterprise SSO and uh, well, let me rephrase that. To me, enterprise sometimes mean on-prem stuff. Is that what you mean there, or do you really mean that's with your Azure Active Directory work school account? So it's both. It's uh, okay. we, so uh, we support all of the Azure Active Directory flows, but uh, we also support some of the on-premise flows, such as integrated Windows Auth. Okay, yeah. So I, I, I think it's been great. Uh, I, I'm very happy with the experience there as well. But now there is one thing that confuses me, and and you know the little uh, um, little secret that everybody knows about is this podcast. Paul gets guests on so he can ask some questions to make his day job better. <laughs> but okay, occasionally when it'll pop up and ask me to select a profile when I'm trying to go to a page, and I've never really understood the rhyme or reason about that. Is that one of the features that you can talk about? Or is that, first of all, I guess is that in the is that only in Canary or is that rolled out to everybody? And secondly, what is this pop up with select a profile for? Yeah, so uh, are you referring to so sort of your you have multiple profiles in Edge, and each of them are signed into a different work account. So you might have your main tenant in one, like an admin tenant in another, and then you're in your admin tenant, and you're trying to go to the Azure portal, and at that point you get prompted as to which uh, thing you want to use. Yes, yes, yeah. So uh, we've heard a lot of feedback on this, especially because, especially for users that use multiple Azure Active Directory accounts. It's so it's unfortunately a limitation in the platform right now, where we can't fetch tokens for a specific Azure Active Directory account. But our intent is that uh, when you're signed into a profile and you say that, "Hey, I'm using this profile for all of my admin tenant stuff." Uh, when you hit Azure portal, you should just be single signed on with that admin tenant. So it is a speed bump in the current product right now, but we're working on it and we're trying to close that gap to sort of uh, remove that prompt and get you signed in with the account you're using that profile with. From a developer point of view, it might just be that I have I have the browser open in my regular tenant because I'm checking email, and then I, I'm, I'm writing some code, and I, I start debugging or hit F5 or whatever the case may be, and I need to log into my developer tenant. And I have a profile that's logged in with that developer tenant. And so being able to switch over to that developer profile or, or even trying to specify how to launch that developer profile would be, certainly be something that'd be helpful. And maybe that's possible and I just haven't figured it out yet, but does that, does that kind of jive with what you're talking about or is that a different capability? We do that to some extent. If you're running uh, multiple profiles and you sort of want to, if you get a link, let's say in an email and you want to open it in your developer profile, if you right click on the link, it gives you the option to open link as any of the profiles. So uh, we've heard from a lot of users that this has been super useful in uh, personal and work scenarios because often you run into something in your personal context uh, and uh, it ends up being something that you want to open in your work context. So you can just right click on a link in the browser at any point and say open link as uh, work. 
Certainly going to start doing that because that always catches me. That's awesome. And and now th these with all these capabilities, right? So I'm a developer. I'm writing code. How do I how do I take advantage of this kind of thing? Well, so let me go back here, right? So I know a lot of our listeners are, are come from the SharePoint world, and so if I'm doing stuff in SharePoint online, it's kind of a no brainer. Everything just works for me. But if I'm not, and I want to have some code, how, how do I get my application to to take advantage of these capabilities? Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with a little bit about how Microsoft uh, Edge does single sign-on and sort of the platform of the amount of signed-in users that you can try to hit. Uh, and then we can get, hand it over to Kyle who can talk a little bit about how you can configure your application uh, to leverage these single sign-on capabilities. So we make it super easy for users to authenticate to Edge by automatically signing them in to the browser when they're signed into Windows 10. So this means that it's super easy for admins to ensure that their uh, enterprise users are signed in with their Azure Active Directory accounts and benefiting from single sign-on. In consumer scenarios as well, uh, this is also relevant because if you have an account signed into Windows, you'll get automatically signed into Edge. And then when you visit a site like hotmail.com or outlook.com, you'll get signed in as that identity. So uh, that's sort of, a, sort of a little bit about the platform of uh, no, the number of users that we, uh, uh, that, we, that we have signed in and how easy it is to get them signed in uh, as an admin. Once you uh, have that platform, it's not only for uh, our uh, first-party Microsoft websites like Outlook.com and Office.com. Uh, you can leverage those single sign-on capabilities in your own websites as well. And I'll hand it over to Kyle from our identity team to talk a little bit about how you can uh, leverage that. Sure. Thanks, Avi. The nice thing is that we have developed, especially for websites, a, a number of uh, what we call our Microsoft authentication libraries. These are all built on top of open standards, so it's always possible for a developer to, to use standards. We think it's a lot better idea to go ahead and use a library, whether it's our MSL libraries that are optimized for our identities or, or another library, because uh, once you start mucking around at the protocol level, it can get pretty complicated pretty fast. But if you look at the basic steps you need to do by using a good library like our MSL libraries, we really make the process a whole lot easier uh, in terms of doing these authentications. So, for example, we have today, if you went to one of our Quick Start pages, we have a Quick Start demo of single-page web application uh, using uh, our MSOL JavaScript version. Uh, and you only really need to learn uh, three APIs, one to log in, and then that login will take advantage of all of the infrastructure that's been built under the covers that Avi was mentioning. So I, for example, I keep uh, different, uh, just like you, Paul, I keep different profiles uh, of my browser. I have, uh, let's see, if I look down at my, my taskbar, I have five different profiles that I launch on a regular basis. Uh, and it, 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 the single sign-on occurs because I simply go ahead and use our MSOL library to make that authentication. So I need to learn only the, the login API that gets me logged into the to the application. The nice thing is, since everything's been set up on the browser and the, the state of the authentication, if you will, is on the browser, my user will probably not even see the fact that I did an authentication. I get an authentication, I get my I, my ID token back to know the user is, is valid and used, allowed to use this app, et cetera, and it's a pretty seamless experience. So the, the best possible sign-in experience is what we refer to as single sign-on. And it's there for a couple of reasons. First off, it makes it easier for the user uh, not to have to type in their name and password. But that's actually the second reason, which is it's a security feature to not have your users continuously entering in their username and passwords or, or those steps, because then they just get into the habit of putting them wherever they're asked for and never thinking about putting them in. So it's important that applications follow the pattern of uh, using something like a library, which does a silent acquisition to start with, uh, and the user doesn't have to see anything. So I'd encourage you, to, if you are interested, there's a number of different MSOL libraries. Uh, we have one for ASP.NET. We, we have the MSOL.NET. We have uh, JavaScript. We have Angular in preview. We have Python. We have Java, et cetera. So there's a number of different libraries available to really integrate that single sign-on authentication uh, directly into your applications. And with the browser doing all the initial work, so I'm, I'm a, the great experience is the standard one. Maybe not the one that you and I have been talking about, Paul, but I'm a user. I use a single browser most of the time. I sign in. It's picked up the fact that I've signed in off of Windows. 
set up that authentication and I get my authentication done without ever having to bother the user at all. That's that's fantastic. And I want to go back a little bit now on the on the libraries. And I'm sure most of our listeners have, have understood the storied past of the authentication libraries. And so the current version of these, it's called the Microsoft Authentication Library, right? And Sal, what, what, what version should they be looking for when I find documentation or third-party blog posts? What version should they be talking about? So I know that we're current. Well, I think most of the the confusion. So we have all of our libraries up on GitHub, which have the the latest versions. I think the confusion often comes with we had our previous invocation of the libraries, which are referred to as the Azure Active Directory authentication libraries, and they were targeted strictly at authenticating users who have an Azure Active Directory account. So we refer to those libraries as ADOL, and they were our previous generations. They're still uh, available and supported. But all of our new work, all of our new innovation, all of the interesting things we're doing moving forward are happening in these Microsoft authentication libraries. They can log in not just a user from Azure AD, but also a user who happens to have any of the Microsoft consumer accounts from, say, Outlook.com or Skype.com, Xbox.com, etc. So all of those consumer identities can also log into your application if you'd like without you changing any code at all. So we have a unified uh, platform in our and, and both on our endpoint that you talk to, as well as our library that offers the ability for you to sign in users. So if you're look, targeting uh, selling to consumers who have Microsoft accounts, uh, then your code is, is not changed. You just say, I'd like to have those users. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned endpoint, but I don't need to worry about the endpoint at that point, right? If I have the current library, it takes care of it, right? The library looks after that. Again, that's kind of protocol level. I appreciate you pointing that out. I try to avoid that, but it is true. Uh, if you use MSOL, it handles what has to happen at the protocol level. And if you want to allow uh, users who have just a Microsoft consumer account to authenticate to your app, you can do that. And now another capability that I'd like you to, to clarify where we're at on this, the, the, my understanding is if I'm using the current MCell library and the user has multi-factor auth behind it, I don't have to worry about that. Is that, that, that the case? Yeah. So the nature of the, of the process is using uh, the standard we see most developers nowadays, which is OpenID Connect. What happens is the application is effectively asking Microsoft Identity to authenticate the user, tell me who this user is. There's a private session that gets created between the user and the identity provider. And since the application has no real say or control over what's happening in that particular web view, if you will, anything can happen to make that authentication work. So whether that's username and password, which we really want to see enterprises and customers moving away from, or that which we certainly want them to see turning on MFA. If you turn on MFA, you reduce your exposure to risk by over 99% because so many breaches today start with some kind of password theft. If I turn on MFA for my enterprise, we reduce that, uh, that risk by 99%. But we'd like to see users move to much more sophisticated, more secure authentication techniques like passwordless, or maybe using FIDO2 keys, et cetera. So the, the real innovation can happen because the application is simply using our library or using the standard that says there's a private conversation happening. And if I did an MFA or whatever, the application developer has a straightforward transaction. Can I have a token? In this case, can I have an ID token? You'll either get that token or not. You'll handle both cases, of course. But what happens to acquire that token which can be very sophisticated and complicated. As you mentioned, MFA, we could get into things like conditional access as well, where maybe I allow the user to use this application from one location but not another. The developer doesn't have to specifically code for any of that. They use our something like MSL, call login or call acquire token silent and getting a token or not. So it can really be helpful for developers and enable their applications and their customers, their users, to move to much more secure uh, postures by doing things like turning on MFA or maybe even moving the password. Link. And so that that's great. If if I'm dealing with an admin, a company, either a customer or a partner company or an administrator in my office turns all those bells and whistles, they turn it on, my code works just fine. Can we do it the other way around? If I, so I work at an ISV and we want to maybe raise the level of protection. Can I, can I do something in my code to make the user use these other factors or do I have to just go with what's already been configured in their tenant? You can request, of course, the problem with something that like you could say, I would like to have an MFA uh, back uh, an authentication that's back to a stronger authentication technique. 
Of course, at that point, if your customer hasn't set it up, they won't be able to move forward. But you can request it, and we, we do keep track, for example, of how a user is authenticated. So if, yes, okay, this user authenticated and, and they use a strong factor, uh, we can just go ahead and ensure that that happens for you. That's excellent. So then, now um, the the I guess I'm going off our, our little beaten our, our outline here because I have all these great questions in my mind at least. So when I first started looking around in the MSAL library, there was some capabilities that weren't supported on some platforms. Is that still an issue, or have you gotten? And that's not a criticism, but well, less like device code didn't work in Node or something like that when it first came out. I think is what I remember. Do we have any? caveats or warnings that developers should know about there's something that's not quite ready or or are you pretty much good to go? Well, the, each of the libraries is tailored for the kind of environment that it can work in. So the simplest case in our JavaScript libraries, whether it's our, our, our standard JavaScript or something like Angular, we don't support things like client credential flow because a browser-based application can't keep a secret that you need for a client credential flow, right? So we automatically build into the library the kind of, of, of authentication you need. Now, now, incidentally, for our MSAL library, we are in the process of, of implementing something called Authcode with Pixie, uh, which is a new recommendation or in-progress recommendation from the OAuth2 folks to enable, uh, enable an application to switch from using what was called implicit flow in the past to off-code flow with Pixie in the future for browser-based applications. The nice thing for a developer who's used our library, they don't actually have to make any changes to the, to the code they've written. Uh, they would make some changes to the configuration of their app, but not to the code they've written because we've gone ahead and, and abstracted away, if you will, some of that protocol goop. Now, if I look at a library like our msol.net, it has more types of scenarios enabled because we see the .NET library being able to be used in lots of other kinds of situations. So our libraries are tailored to their predominant usage at the moment, and you'll see us start to expand on some of those. So there are some things you would need to look at as you look at our libraries and say, okay, you know, is there, this have a particular focus? So our biggest focus is probably around our JavaScript library today, but there are, there are, there are tailoring that we do because of the the nature of where the language usually is uh, used. All right. So if I'm trying to do an app-only token and I don't see it in the library, perhaps I'm using the wrong library, I think is kind of the message there, right? So it would be. Yeah. It is certainly, a, a, you know, we, we tend to tailor it for their sort of, uh, to begin with, uh, for their, their, their primary uh, usage. That's nice. And so now, I mean, I've done a bunch with the with the .NET libraries, and and it's covers every use case that I have. But one thing that that I, I see people run into some confusion with is is login versus accessing Microsoft Graph, for example. I know you mentioned before about the ID token. Can you give us a little bit of distinction between what those token types are and how they are used? Sure. It's a it's a question we often uh, find developers are are struggling with. The first thing that we, t we tend to, to see applications want to do is that initial authentication. Everything is built on top of a standard referred to as OAuth2, and that's how authorization has sort of the most modern version of that has been done. But authenticating a user is kind of a very special case. So there's another standard built on top of OAuth2 called OpenID Connect, uh, and its purpose is has to do one thing, which is to be, provide to the application the identity of the user. So the identity is uh, authenticated by the identity provider itself. So the application doesn't have to know the user's name and password or with MFA is turned on or whatever combination the, somebody wants to set up. Uh, it asks that information out of the identity provider. And then the identity provider identifies that user because we're using a standard here, OpenID Connect, in a very standard way. So you would work across multiple identity providers and your code could, could be the same. Those tokens are referred to as ID tokens because they're specifically there for the application to identify the user. Now, how that, that, that user is identified depends upon some other settings. So I might have only, if I was being very secure, maybe I only have something called the subject claim, uh, but I also may have additional claims like the user's name, etc. that to the application uh, identify who the user is. And that's the only purpose of that ID token, is to identify the user to the application. The next step, though, is most applications then need to call an API. At that point, we're really not talking about authentication, strictly speaking. We're into the world of authorization, meaning, is my application authorized? 
call this API. We're not talking about the user. The user can do whatever the user can do. The question is, does the user or the resource owner, if I'm in an enterprise, maybe an admin, trust the application with access to this information? So the application has to make a request for permission to access that information. And it goes through this process of acquiring a token to do that. So the application says, I'd like to be able to read something. Or maybe the application says, I'd like to be able to update something. That request is for something called the token. Now, since the advent of OpenID Connect, we actually refer to that to token now as an access token. And it's acquired by the application for one purpose, which is to give it to the API uh, when it calls the API. So I want to caution developers to make sure that even though you see that the access token looks like something you can interpret, you shouldn't. The token response will tell you all of the debugging information you need to, to know about what's in the token. But the format of the token, the nature of the, the structure of the token, there is no standard for the access token, the ability to call an API. So we can change the way we do tokens uh, or, or not because nobody says what an access token has to look like. An identity token has one use. Here is the user for the application so they can say, hi, Kyle or track what I've done in the application because I give them a unique ID that they can use to say, okay, here's how I, this is the index I'm going to use for all of Kyle's information in my database. When that application in turn needs to call or get access to a resource by calling an API, it needs to ask for an access token specifically for that API, which says, I would like to read the Microsoft Graph current user profile, for example. And then assuming that somebody says, yes, I trust this application with that information, they get back, the app, application gets back its access token and gives that directly to the API. So there are two broad level types of token. An ID token, the format of which is specified by OpenID Connect standard that identifies a user to an application, and an access token, which has no standard to, de to designate what it looks like, but it doesn't matter because the only thing that needs to understand what that standard is, is the API itself and not the application. Thank you for that clarification. And now I, at conferences, well, when we all went to conferences back in the day, inevitably you'd see someone would open up, you know, take the, the, the token and paste it in a website so they could look at the claims that are in it. But, and you kind of hinted at that, that the library gives you that debugging information. So uh, then does that work across all the libraries? Like, for example, what, what I end up working, having a problem with is there's a configuration issue, so I get a token for tenant X and I try to get data from from tenant Y, and of course that's not going to work. So the, the libraries will help me uh, determine the audience or the, the target of each token for me I, without me having to understand the format. Is that Do I have that correct? The library is really, what I'm really thinking of here is something called the, the token response. When you ask for a token, it's basically an HTTP type transaction or it is an HTTP transaction. So you make a request, you get a response. That's the, the basic nature of it. Inside of that response somewhere is the access token or the ID token or both, depending upon what you've asked for. Additional information is also in that response, and that's the information you should use to drive your debugging and, and other things. So, for example, we'll tell you how long the tokens that we just gave you are good for. You don't need to go look inside an access token to find out when does it expire. You may not be able to do that. We tell you how long this token is good for in the token response itself. Similarly, there's a list of scopes, there's information about the user, for example, what's the user's home tenant, what tenant is being issued, and so on. So the information that you generally tend to want to say, oh, I'll just take a quick look at an access token for that, is really the stuff you need is available to you in the token response. There's one other really cool nugget in the token response, by the way. It is that correlation ID. If you're going to log anything about your authentications and, uh, and you're ac getting access tokens or even signing in, it's the correlation ID that's in that token response. It's not in the token itself. It's in the token response that you want to log. Because if you come back to us and say, hey, I need to open a case. Why isn't this working or why did I not get my expected results? If you say, hey, some user couldn't sign in on Tuesday. Can you help me? That's kind of hard to trace down. But if you say, here's a correlation ID. Then we can then we can go and figure it out. You, you might have more than one authentication happening every day, right? <laughs> yeah, we run about uh, well before we the, the current usage. We we have had a big spike in usage nowadays, given the amount of people who are working from home. Uh, but before that, we did about thirty billion authentications a day. 
Yeah, it make, that makes sense. Now, now there's one more there's one more aspect of this that I, I, since I have you on the phone, so to speak, if if I have I can write an API and secure it with Azure Active Directory. Now, do these libraries help me in that regard as well? Oddly enough, you don't need MSOL to do the API side. Now, obviously, our, our friends at ASB.NET and ASB.NET Core, they got a lot of things to help you there. The interesting thing is when, so you're writing an API. For APIs, we do give you a JOT token for an API developer. That's why we're cautioning applications not to look at them. But the API designer, his developer, his whole job is to look at that access token. So he has to make sure that the token is properly signed, right? There's a signature part involved. Uh, it's, 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 uh, you have to go and check that it's signed correctly so you know no one has tampered with it. So the, the first thing you do is make sure that the token is signed. Then you would go ahead and start looking at the claims in the token and deciding how your API will, will function. Uh, so for example, maybe I have a, a, a single API call that lets someone you know, read different values, and I could decide from the, the say the scope that's included in the token whether I get to return that to this this API call or not. So the API designer does all of that work now to validate the token because it's a JWT token. You don't make a call to Microsoft uh, Identity to do the validation. You can validate the signature of the token directly from the information that's there. The only thing you need to do is about once a day or so talk to our endpoint where we list, here's the signing keys we use to sign these tokens. And as long as the, the token says, I use this signing key, you make sure that you look at our list of signing keys. Oh, yes, it is here. I'll go ahead and val- validate it. You only need to do that check and refresh a cache of our signing tokens about once a day. We change them much, much less often than that. But it's a good practice. It's good to make sure you're, you're fresh. Since you're not calling it, you don't really need an API to call us back. The token validation, uh, we, we do have that as a part of ncel.net. We have it as part of uh, ASP. ASP.net and ASP.net Core. Other libraries have other topics to help you validate the token. It is a standard unto itself. Uh, and that's all the API developer needs to do. Okay, so if I see this in .NET Core, for example, the that library is probably not an MCEL thing. Is I, is I think is what I'm hearing, right? But not okay. It, yes, .NET Core has its own stuff built in. If you say I want JOT uh, tokens, they know how to validate the token for you. Okay, excellent, excellent. So now is uh, you validated all my thinking, which is which is good for me. Is there any other topics that that I steered away from that that you think are important? We want to get out again. But the the people listening are are down in the in the weeds writing code like crazy anything else that we should have them look out for no i think we covered for me the big ones are as you talked about there are two basic types of tokens id tokens to identify the user access tokens the things we can that concern me is developers who are looking inside of access tokens and making a decision based on that data nothing prevents tomorrow from that token to start being encrypted and your ability to look into it will disappear so that's something i want to i want to stress Using a library is important. Uh, MSOL, if you're targeting our environment directly, or a well-maintained uh, open source or other library available, uh, is great. We are fully OpenID Connect and OAuth 2 uh, OpenID Connect certified, uh, so you can go ahead and use just about any library out there, and it will work fine with us. And then again, uh, make sure you, you handle tokens directly. ID tokens identify the user to the app. They don't give you access to something else. Don't try to use someone else's token, those kinds of things, those are important. Thank you. And so now, Avi, back to you. All these the gobbledygook developer stuff we've been yammering on about, if I'm using Edge for my end users, is there anything I need to do special? Or is that, that's, I guess that's the point, is it just works, right? Yeah, I think uh, that that's exactly the point. It just it should just work. Like uh, when once you've configured your, uh, your application uh, based on those things that Kyle said, when you hit your application in Edge and you're signed into the browser, you should just get signed into the website. It should function just like you've seen any of these uh, first-party sites function uh, in Edge uh, in Edge today. Uh, Kyle, is there an example of uh, or a sample of a third-party site that we maintain uh, that we can point developers to to see what this would be like? Sure. The easiest AKA I can give you, uh, aka.ms slash... A A D D E V 
will take you to our main developer page for Microsoft Identity. And from there, you'll see uh, pointers to our quick starts uh, and so on. So you And all of our repositories up on GitHub are referenced from that those pages. And there's a lot of samples up there. Last time I looked, there was it was almost overwhelming. <laughs> yes, and, and despite the fact that you always seem to think, yeah, I've got a lot of samples, there's always someone who says, oh, well, <laughs> could I have a sample for this? And we try to accommodate, but uh, you're right, there's a lot of samples there. Yeah, and, and so I guess from the developer side, uh, if there's some feedback we want to get to, is uh, the GitHub repo the best place to go, or do you have a better site for feedback? Uh, for feedback, if it is on a specific library, then you can go there and, and raise a raise an issue there. Uh, other than that, the uh, Stack Overflow is is the best place to raise questions. Our our team does look at Stack Overflow all the time, uh, so it's a great place for you to have your questions uh, to, to to the identity team. Uh, we we monitor that all the time. And then that for Edge, then uh, I, I, I know on the on the Canary version, there's the feedback button. But for folks using Edge who have questions or feedback, what's the best way for those to to get those in front of you guys? Yeah, so the feedback button in in uh, in any of our browser versions is probably the best way to reach us with uh, pointed feedback. We also, and let me pull it up because this launched uh, yesterday, but we also recently unveiled a user voice forum where you can uh, weigh in on uh, on any ideas, specifically developer and enterprise right now. Uh, it's microsoftedge.uservoice.com. Once again, that's microsoftedge.uservoice.com. Or you can even try to engage with any of our insider forums uh, at microsoftedgeinsider.com, where we have links to uh, all of the community uh outlets that we have right now. So we have a tech community forum, we have a user voice forum, and we have a blog. The in-app feedback is probably the best way to reach our product teams with diagnostic information to help us uh, debug your issues. So thanks very much, both of you. And then um, I really appreciate this, the uh, educating me and, and the identity. I don't think we can ever do too much on this. It's a tough thing. And, and I have to say, I'm loving, I'm loving Edge. It's, it's made my life phenomenally better not having to do these sign-ons and multiple tenants. So great work, everyone. And I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks. for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.M365DevPodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. 